This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. hard to believe that every time we talk about real estate, it seems to be because it's only moving in one direction, and that is up and up. And that has been the case throughout the pandemic, which is and continues to be a huge surprise. March, another month of mind-boggling numbers. And this is the time of year when demand would start increasing anyway, right? Spring is generally a busier time for real estate, but there has been no slow month yet. Let's talk more about that this morning with Dane Idle, who's the founder and lead analyst at Idle Insights. We talk about real estate with him all the time. Good morning, Dane. Good morning, Simi. Great to be back with you. Well, at some point, did these numbers surprise even you? Absolutely. Um, the, the, the torrid pace that they're taking off at it, it is astonishing. Uh, just for kind of a metric, the 2020 average sale price was 1657000 throughout the whole year. As of March, we're at $1,958,000. So we're $300,000 above in the detached market where we were even just last year. So what, is it still this lack of supply, do you think, that's driving this? It, it is very much the lack of supply. The interesting thing here in March, we have noticed a major ramp up in the inventory. So in the detached uh, market, there was over 3,368 properties added to the market. The um, unfortunate event was that we actually only netted the month with 3,886. So there's really only 500 um, left over inventory compared to the month before. So even though the inventory is really ramping up, we did notice that the sales took off this month as well. So the detached market hit the second highest sales ever uh, in the last 17 years or even before that. But um, so we're only lacking compared to 2016's March when there was 2,150 sales in the detached market. This month, uh, there was 1,973. So we're very close to the all-time high. And in the condo market, we did hit the all-time high for the sales. Uh, there was over 2,698 uh, completions that took place in the condo market last month. So do you think that if there is more supply coming on the market, that at some point that will help mitigate the activity that we see? Absolutely. It really all does boil down to the supply and the demand. Um, of course, over the last year, there was no supply and that demand had ratcheted up uh, quite a bit because of that work from home, stay from home movement. And I was just listening earlier and, and they said that you know, the schools might be shutting down again. So they, that will continue to drive this market. However, as you state, when inventory does reach a critical mass, then the prices will at least curtail. We're not necessarily expecting a major drop off like we were back in 2017. Just because of the government intervention, this $8 billion mortgage stimulus that they put in last play, last year really did kind of put a floor into the market. So we're not expecting it to see a significant drop-off. However, as the inventory continues to build, you will see a natural uh, cooling effect. So is there something in particular, I know you were just talking about the condo market there, but is there something in particular driving this? Because earlier it was single detached. It still very much is the single detached. And what's interesting about the condo market is that the prices were so heavily depressed, the downtown core especially, that we're seeing a lot of people come back to invest in those markets. So they were off 30 40% in some cases. 
And now we're seeing prices come back up to only being down negative 15%, which is a major increase compared to even six months ago. But really the driving factor of this market has been the detached. So usually you see the bottom um, push the the detached up, people upgrading from the condos going into the the houses. Here we're really just seeing everybody's uh, desirability for the detached property. So Again, the Maple Ridge market, the Port Coquitlam market, they just have absolutely exploded from where they were last year. And now we're starting to see the usual market leaders, such as the West Vancouver's and Vancouver West, they're actually catching up as well. So West Vancouver is very close to where its old peak, where even, I believe it was about five months ago, we were off closer to 23%. And those are some major values. And that's what we're really starting to see here. The whole market has reacted where before it was just maybe some of the entry level markets that were really starting to skyrocket. Now the complete detached market is really taking off. Okay. But at what point, like if, if the interest rates start to creep back up a little bit, uh, at, at what point does that like halt things in the housing market? Because I think that's also driving a lot of this. Absolutely. So it really does boil down to, like I said, that that supply-demand factor. And then, of course, your demand is how much can you afford for the money that you have. The interest rates have been historically cheap. We are noticing them start to come back up. The 10-year Treasury note um, has been moving. That's over tripled compared to what it was July of last year. So we do expect the interest rates to tepidly continue to increase. That being said, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada have stated that they're not going to completely rise interest rates till 2023. So that does give you some guideline that this in low lower environment will remain for a period of time. So really, the only thing that could t- curtail that is the inventory. Um, what is very interesting for the detached market, again, with 3,886 active listings in March, that is actually testing the downtrend, which was instigated back in 2019. And that trend line we have not been able to overcome. So with the next few months of data, should the inventory continue to come to market at a, at a torrid pace, we will definitely break that downtrend line. And then the next um, gauge point would be right around 5,700 active listings around the, the mid to late summer, which would be a complete boon to compared to where the inventory is at right now. Right. And that would definitely curtail the prices, like I say, maybe not a major correction, but at least you'll have time with the inventory and properties not being you know, multiple offers, subject-free, sold that weekend. So, and quickly on this one, Dane, how, what do you think about this whole idea of changing the bidding process? Because there's been a lot of criticism of, of that being the reason, one of the reasons why prices are so going up so quickly too, right? Right. So they have actually addressed that. Uh, there is more transparency in the um, bidding process. Uh, that being said, of course, the buyers want more transparency. Um, you know, the sellers are really in control right now. And I, and I do remember a couple of years ago, again, when the market was off 20%, that there was no call for needed transparency because it isn't. So it is just a natural market factor being one of the, you know, the leaders of the Canadian real estate market. Vancouver is the jewel. So there will always during, uh, you know, uh, frenzied markets, there will be complaints from the buyers. Uh, and then during cool markets, there will be complaints from the sellers saying that the government over uh, impacted the market like they uh, were saying there a couple of years ago. So it does kind of ebb and flow, but depending on which side of the uh, spectrum that you're on. All right. Thanks so much for your time on that this morning. No problem, Simi. Thank you, Beck. That's Dane Idol, founder and lead analyst at Idol Insights. They are a real estate uh, marketing and analysis firm. There's so much you can analyze when it comes to real estate, but what it comes down to is that it just seems astronomically expensive right now, difficult to get into, uh, and just even difficult, even if you want to, find a property and buy it for anything close to a decent price. It's just not possible right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
I'm going to talk about some really disgusting behavior in Penticton now, where a local restaurant owner was caught dumping a bucket full of dog poop in front of a homeless shelter. Now, we know the issue of homelessness in Penticton has been very contentious. Uh, They've been struggling to get help for people in that situation. There has been a war of words between the mayor there and Housing Minister David Eby. But let's talk about how has it gotten to this point, this level of nastiness, it almost seems like. Well, Tony Lang is the CEO of the Penticton and District Society for Community Living and joins us now to talk about the situation. Tony, thank you for being here. Good to be here. Thank now, you. This was in front of the building where you work, is that right? That's right, yes, right, right on the sidewalk. <laughs> what, what happened? Um, uh, like you said, uh, a neighboring uh, restaurant owner um, carried over a bucket of dog poop and dumped it on the sidewalk uh, in front of our building uh, in uh, about 11 o'clock in the morning in broad daylight uh, as an expression of his frustration. And how did you find out it was that particular person? Um, one of my staff uh, texted me a photo and um, actually spoke to the individual and asked him why he did this. And basically he said he was frustrated with finding feces outside his restaurant and blamed it on the people that were uh, residing at the shelter. Okay. Now, what happened as a result of this? Like, when the, I understand that it went like kind of went crazy on Facebook because this is the person who owns the local White Spot. There, White Spot now got involved and said they're asking him to step away from his day to day duties. What has the reaction been like? Uh, well, it, like you say, it blew up on 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 social media, um, local media. Uh, and now uh, Vancouver media. So it's uh, quite the story. Uh, we don't normally see this level of uh, activity, you know, from, you know, in these types of debates. Uh, normally people, you know, will have an opinion and express it. And um, But I think the, the way uh, it's been happening these days, uh, you know, people feel free to express their opinions uh, or hate or you know, discrimination a lot more openly, I think, in the past for some reason. And I, I you know, I, I've been thinking about it since it happened. And, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter, Asian hate, all these things are are, are coming um, in more high profile. People feel um, more emboldened to do things, I think. And, and this is the result. What have you heard from the community? Because this is a, a, a black eye, right? To have a story like this out there circulating. So what, what kind of response have you gotten from the community? Um, well, I haven't gotten too much directly. Uh, I've been, you know, I, I've been reading the comments on social media and such. And, uh, you know, there's, there's shock uh, in the community that somebody... Uh, as hope, you know, as a small community as high profile as an owner of a local restaurant would do something like this. And uh, you know, the, the the issue of homelessness in Penticton is very polarizing, and uh, there's a, you know, there's not much middle ground. It seems. No, clearly not at all. And how do you? How do the people who stay in your building there, in your particular line of work, how does it make them feel when they hear about something like this? You know, I, I don't know that if it really um, has affected the residents. Um, you know, the uh, homeless in Penticton are, are so looked down on that uh, I don't think there's much further they can go. Oh, that's so sad to hear that, Tony. 
Yeah, yeah, we work, you know, uh, our staff, it was very disheartening to our staff. I know that for a fact, that that somebody would actually do this, um, you know, and they work so hard and to, you know, try and, and, and help people, you know. Uh, the people that work in our shelters are, um, you know, they are dedicated. They, you know, they choose the work that they do uh, to try and help individuals at some of the lowest points in their lives. Do you feel a bit caught in the middle here between politicians and kind of warring to get things done? Um, so far, uh, I, I have appreciated that you know, between the city and the province that we haven't felt in the middle, that we feel that, uh, you know, the, the discussions between them have, have so far uh, been uh, away from us. Uh, we're impacted. We're, we haven't been severely impacted on it. We continue to operate uh, with the support of BC Housing, and um, so far it hasn't really impacted us. Uh, but I think what it's done now is that uh, it's bringing out some of those, um, uh, you know, polarizing feelings that the community has. Right. You know, this is, yeah, this is one situation where somebody's moved to action, but we've had uh, a number of occasions where, um, you know, we've had you know the public people are yelling at our staff or yelling at individuals uh, outside our our facilities. So how much has the need grown, though, for the services that you provide? Well, it, it, the homeless count uh, in Penticton is uh, the official homeless count is coming up in in April. But I can tell you that uh, between the two shelters that I operate, uh, we service over 125 or 30 people uh, every month. We only have 75 beds between the two. But uh, with people, you know, coming in and out of shelter, uh, we have a by-name list of over 120. That's a lot. So listen, Tony, best of luck with the work that you do. Well, thank you for your interest, um, and uh, have a good day. Yeah, you too. Hopefully things will improve. That is Tony Lang, the CEO of the Penticton and District Society for Community Living, talking about the very contentious situation surrounding homeless shelters in that city that led a local business owner to lash out uh, in that fashion. Just not a good scene there at all. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about school liaison officers. In the District of Vancouver, it has become a hot topic because once again, the future of the program that puts schools with a police officer together was on the agenda at the Vancouver School Board meeting last night. And let's find out what happened. Joining us now is Jennifer Reddy, Vancouver School Board trustee with One City, who has spoken out against the program previously. Jennifer, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning to me. What happened last night? Yeah, so last night is a part of a series of meetings um, taking place. And for myself as a trustee, um, attending committee meetings is pretty standard business. So um, this one in particular, though, is really important because it's um, due to an issue arising last year, uh, which was thousands of calls to action for the removal of police uh, liaison officers in schools, um, which now um, the review has been uh, completed. And the committee meeting last night was an opportunity to hear from stakeholders on their perspective of the review. Okay, so what did the review say? Yeah, so the review had three parts, um, and I'd say, uh, you know, with varying degrees. Uh, one part of it is around um, background and context on, you know, the origins of the program here. And another one is sort of a, a student survey on perspectives and experiences with police and schools at this point in time. 
All right. So there's been a lot of discussion about this, right? We, we also heard earlier that obviously you heard from some people who said this has been a useful tool. Is there a way then, do you think, to retool the program to make it so that more people are happy with it? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, for me, I've been thinking a lot about that and, and kind of heard a little bit about that last night. Um, I would say that what led to the review, though, is a full removal. And so for me as a trustee, I'm looking into why that is. And when there's harm being caused in our school, that's where I need to take responsibility and address that harm. So there ha- hasn't been calls to action for sort of these modifications um, or or kind of changing some aspects of the program, but rather removal was the request um, and continues to be the request. Right. I guess what I wonder is, I know I heard we heard from a lot of students who said they had not had good experiences with this. Is there a way to turn those into good experiences? How do we do that? Yeah, it's another great question. I think that's coming up quite a bit and folks are really thinking about, you know, how how can we make these systems work together? And I guess uh, the other side of what I'm thinking about is around children's rights. And when we are thinking about kind of tinkering with the system, what ends up happening is... um, you end up compromising the rights of some in order to protect the rights of others. And rights, especially for children, when adults are in charge of upholding their rights, need to be relational. So my right to freedom of speech is has an extent until it affects your right to be free from discrimination, for example. So this is one of those situations where we can't actually have it both ways because of the way the harm is taking place. Right. So then what do you, what's going to happen here then? What are the next steps? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, In the end of April, from what we found out last night, April 26th is the next board meeting. And so that's when the board can actually make a decision. There wasn't a recommendation that came forward last night, which, um, you know, for me as an individual uh, trustee was quite unusual to have not not have a recommendation from the committee itself. Um, But we have time to have see something from that committee uh, before the end of the month. What kind of feedback have you gotten from the public on this? Yeah, quite a range. Um, I would say very similar to what you probably read in the review, um, which is perspectives on neutrality, um, not having uh, negative experiences to experiencing harm. Uh, so quite a range, but also um, specifically looking at who these uh, voices are, the demographics of the voices, um, when we're thinking about um, how we're weighting the information that we've received, it's not only about sort of numbers and data, but about where in the demographic, who is actually speaking up against and for the program, and at whose expense are we um, valuing some experiences over the others. All right, so then you expect a decision to be made at the end of this month? That's right, April 26th. All right, we'll find out what happens then. Jennifer, thank you for your time. Great. Thanks for having me. That's Jennifer Reddy, Vancouver School Board trustee with One City, talking about the future of the school liaison officer program, as you heard there. No recommendation came from the committee. She said that was unusual, but they are going to vote on the future of the program April 26th, end of this month. And I I hear from a lot of people on this too. I wish they could find a way to improve it so that students don't have that outcome of having a bad relationship with, you know, an officer in their schools or, you know, just not having those negative associations um, attached to it. Is there a way to improve it and how do you do that? This is Mornings with Simi. What's different, I think, about this third wave of COVID-19 cases here in BC, besides the variant, 
is the approach that has been taken to it. People saw it coming. There's been a lot more criticism, I think, of uh, provincial policy in regards to this third wave than we have seen in others. We're at we're in a bad place here with more than a thousand cases a day on average. And uh, yeah, it, what are we going to do about it? Well, talking to us more about the approach that BC has taken here is Jens von Bergman, a founder of the data analysis firm Mountain Math. He has a PhD in mathematics. Jens, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me on. What has struck you about the approach this time around? It's been um, quite reactive, as as uh, BC has acted in the past. So uh, when the variants uh, started to... Um, um, people started to be concerned about the variants in December. There was um, it was slow action to start to detect them when the variants started to arrive. When we had our first cases, um, it, it didn't seem like there was much of a different approach to um, maybe try to keep the variants out. And when it looked like variants started to become established, there wasn't really a push to uh, stomp it out fast like uh, we've seen in other jurisdictions. And uh, the effect is that really the variants, they, they knocked, they entered, they came, they settled down, and now they're here to stay. It certainly looks that way, doesn't it? Would you say, like, would you say that we fumbled the approach on this? Um, yes, I think so. I think um, it, it was clear that the variants really are a new pandemic. Um, we shouldn't really think of it as just being a little bit different COVID. Um, their behavior, especially the more transmissible ones, is sufficiently different that um, they require um, very different measures to keep them under control, as we're seeing now. So um, the British variant um, that is um, responsible for most of our case growth these days, um, it just grows significantly faster, the cases, so it spreads significantly easier that that is now what's dominating our measures. Right. Um, now, Jens has often said, right, that numbers don't lie. So just looking at the numbers, was it possible to have seen this coming? Um, yes. So this this was very clear for the, the British variant. We knew, especially the British one, we understand really, really well. Um, we've seen this play out in England first and then played out in other uh, countries across Europe. And um, we knew exactly what was going to happen once they arrived here. We saw the first cases. And once we had sort of this first um, count where we knew it was actually spreading through the community, it was basically the trajectory from then on was very clear and very predictable. It followed exactly the same pattern that we've seen across other jurisdictions. So there was nothing surprising in B.C., uh, and yet we seem to act like we're surprised, right? Uh, so what, knowing that then, that the numbers don't lie and it is predictable, can we predict our way to what the next little while is going to look like? Yes. So we've, we've had um, uh, the so-called circuit breaker now. So that added more restrictions. And I'm hoping that um, the general public is also a bit um, shell-shocked by these numbers. And we've seen, we'll see... Um, better adherence to the new and also the existing rules. So hopefully that will slow the growth. Um, I'm not convinced that the current measures are enough to actually um, bring down the new variants. It certainly will slow the growth and it'll slow the old variants. Um, it'll bring down the old, the old COVID. Right. So, so that's good. Um, will it be enough to uh, rein in the variants? Uh, we'll have to see. And um, I, I'm not convinced it will. I think we'll have to go to um, stronger measures um, at some point. 
um, because I don't think it'll buy us in just yet just enough time for um, vaccines to, so to kick in. Do you think it's like old measures, old variants? These are new variants. We need some new measures. Yeah, very clearly. I mean, the old measures kind of worked for the old variants. Um, the the decline that we had first seen in, um, at, in December, January, that was uh, somewhat encouraging. It had slowed. It wasn't declining at the same rates anymore um, in in February. Um, so, um, so there was some change in behavior there that started maybe in the beginning of February and that we've seen, but um, it also didn't grow. The, the old variants, but in this same environment, the new variants flourish, and um, as we have seen uh, the, all this growth um, that has happened over the course of um, maybe at the, the beginning of this month, um, that's all the variants. Like, oh, that's not right. the, um, the regular COVID. Yes, is anybody approaching this the way that you think it needs to be approached? Well, we've seen in other jurisdictions where um, there were much harder uh, measures. So um, even just in Canada, if we look at Ontario, they're starting to look at much harder lockdowns now to keep these things under control. And um, But also if we just look across, um, across Toronto, and England did a very hard lockdown to get their numbers under control. Denmark did the same. Um, so the question that we really have is with... Um, um, the, our encouraging increasing rates of vaccination, like how long do we have to drag this out before we have enough immunity from our vaccinations? Right. But there again, the problem is that uh, if, if that's the approach we're taking, we need to think more seriously about how we vaccinate. Vaccinating by age is uh, what you do maybe if you want to protect um, the most vulnerable, but that's not what you do if, you, if your focus is to stop transmission. Right. So you're saying that given what we know now, like four months ago, it was about protecting the vulnerable. Is it now perhaps time to go, no, we need to do something differently? Well, I mean, there there were many experts already uh, a month or two ago that were saying we should focus on essential workers and younger people first after we get the 80 plus people, uh, because the benefits also occur for everybody, even the people, say, in uh, their 60s and 70s that you think might miss out if you shift the vaccination. But um, the best way to protect somebody is to make sure they don't even get exposed. Yeah. Uh, Jens, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, appreciate that take. That's Jens von Bergman, founder of the data analysis firm Mountain Math, has a PhD in mathematics and has been extensively following along, kind of modeling and predicting what is going to happen with this and says it's pretty clear we fumbled the third wave, even though the numbers told us this was coming. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Vancouver Whitecaps have a new partnership to announce. Joining us is Mark Dos Santos, the head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Cindy. How are you? I am good, thank you. And I'm so glad to hear this. So the Vancouver Whitecaps are going to be heard on AM730. Is that right? Yes, exactly. And it's an exciting partnership. And we're glad to, to be there for you guys also. 
Oh, also, you're going to hear the games on AM730. We're going to hear from you every week right here on the show on Mornings with Simi. Tell me about what's been going on. You guys are down just outside of Salt Lake City. Is that right? Yes, uh, we're, we're in an area called Sandy in Salt Lake City. Uh, of course, right now we're going through all the normal adaptation of a team moving to another city and playing uh, in another city. Um, you know, families moved, uh, uh, people moved, and, and it, this is a challenge for the first few days, but I think slowly we're getting uh, adapted to everything here. So you're getting ready for the season to kick off in a couple of weeks. What are you focusing on right now? Right now we're focused on getting everybody together. Um, COVID really changed um, the dynamics of sports. And uh, we have still players that are waiting on their visas to, to get in the country and to join the team. Uh, new players that have to get adapted as fast as possible and not they're not here so our focus right now is to get all the group together as fast as possible. But there are things that are out of our control right now. Right. It's been difficult, right? Last year must have been difficult, too. Have, what has changed for you this year? Is it just better knowing the situation? You know the challenges this time around? We're just getting used to the fact, you know, we don't want that, but we're, we don't play home. Uh, we've been playing... Uh, out of uh, Orlando, we've been playing out of Portland. Now we're going to play out of Salt Lake. Uh, it's just a new reality in sports for Canadian teams for now. But we know that uh, soon, hopefully soon, everything's going to get back to normal. But I think we're still going to have to be patient uh, with everything uh, happening in, uh, with the pandemic. Now, what would you say to Vancouver Whitecaps fans then for the upcoming season? That they have to follow us. Uh, with excitement, even if we're away, because we can't wait to get back home um, and show what type of team we could uh, be about when we get back home. Well, you know what? We will do that, Mark. Listen, best of luck, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We'll be talking to you soon. That's Mark Dos Santos, head coach of the Vancouver Whitecaps, helping us to announce that the Vancouver Whitecaps have announced a partnership with Chorus Entertainment. You're going to hear the games on AM 730. That'll be live play-by-play plus one-hour pre- and post-match shows. So on AM 730, you will regularly hear the coaches on Global News Radio 980 CKNW. So in fact, every week here on Mornings with Simi, and you'll hear all about them on CFOX and Rock 101 as well. So we are very excited that we can help you listen to the Vancouver Whitecaps this upcoming season. They kick off in two weeks. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, when this pandemic first started, there was a lot of call for cracking down at the border, right? Making sure people were in quarantine. We've gone through that for the past year. Then we brought in, you know, hotel quarantines for international travelers. Big news when they were first introduced. And at that time, the federal government said they were crucial for preventing the spread of COVID-19 variants here in Canada. Well, I guess that didn't work, right? Read a great piece about this, uh, written by our next guest, Chris Selly, a columnist with the National Post, who joins us now. Chris, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So, would you assess this as saying, "Well, that real clearly didn't work"? Well, it clearly didn't work. It, it wasn't set up to work, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, uh, th- that's not exactly a defense of the program, but uh, the fact is that we live next door to. Uh, a country 10 times the size with much fewer um, restrictions on their own citizens traveling around the world and much fewer restrictions on them when they come back. And something like 
180,000 people cross the Canada-U.S. border every day uh, into Canada a week. Uh, and we don't even test them, never mind quarantine them, the vast majority of them anyways. I mean, if tourists, you know, for example, do have to quarantine at home, but the vast majority of those are essential workers. And we didn't do anything about them. We didn't even try to do anything about them. And so, um, and furthermore, a quarter of the people who arrive by air, as a colleague of mine, the National Post reported last week, uh, are also exempt from from hotel quarantine or and or quarantine altogether. So, I mean, we were dealing with a tiny fraction of the number of people coming in to the country, and we were only holding them there in the hotel until their test taken on arrival came back. We weren't even waiting the, the supposed three days to see if any symptoms developed. And no one else in the world does three days hotel quarantine. They do 10 or 14 to make absolutely sure. But this is just a, a totally slapdash symbolic thing from the start. So what was um, the so point? It didn't work, but it couldn't have worked. What was the point then of doing this? Well, the point, I think quite clearly when you look back on it, was to respond to this sudden public fury over politicians, including our former finance minister here in Ontario and you know several other public figures across the country who were found to have been traveling. And everyone was suddenly, you know, I think understandably upset with elected officials, you know, fleeing the country, fleeing the rules that they themselves have set into motion. But then somehow that public fury expanded to cover your average snowbird, which didn't make any sense to me at all, because really it's not. We skin off our back if if people leave. Yeah, we need them to be careful when they come back, precisely because of the new variants that we're now dealing with. Um, but I think it was just kind of a it was a weird, uh, almost a moral panic uh, because the liberals had uh, the federal liberals had until like the day before they brought in this policy basically been saying oh, it's not worth worrying about international travelers because there's so few so few cases have been linked to them. So I think it was just a purely political um, play designed to sort of find a political sweet spot um, to respond to this to respond to this anger, but it, it had no basis in any kind of pandemic management. Right, and yet, Chris, like I'm sure you get the emails, I get the emails from people who constantly complain about why aren't we doing more at our borders the way other countries did. That's right, and, and I mean, you know, there's only so much Canada can do. You know, people point to like. So Korea, or Australia, or New Zealand, I mean, the fact is they, they, they don't rely on 160,000 people crossing the border every week. They just don't. And, and that would have been a huge ask. Um, you know, the government a couple of weeks ago said it was thinking about uh, deploying some of these rapid tests it has uh, to test essential workers crossing the border. Um, you know, that would provide the workers some peace of mind, quite apart from anything else, although vaccination would provide them the real um uh, piece of money they need and would prevent and would protect us now that I think about it. So, you know, it, it, it's, um, yeah, it's just a bizarre situation. Um, but, but, you know, as I said, there was only so much we could do, Yeah. but we didn't try to do anything essentially at, at the border. We just, we just trusted it. And we know right at the very beginning, everyone was worried about China and Iran. We know that the cases that the, came from abroad, actually came from the States. Yeah. Um, and that was more than a year ago now. <laughs> we haven't done anything. 
And Chris, do you think people are getting really weary? I, I find that the tone has changed, you know, like I think for the first year, people were like, yes, we're going to beat this thing. Let's do it, whatever it takes. And okay, if the government says we have to do that, we have to do that. And I find that now, and even with myself, there's just a lot more questioning of the decision making. For sure. Um, well, and I think, that, I think there were always people questioning it, but I think there are more people now questioning it. And, and really people who are sort of, you know, here in Toronto, for example, I know there are people who are we're definitely pro lockdown. Like, like they think that the, they think the restrictions should be in place, but that when they're told, you know, well, they can't go more than not a, a kilometer from home or whatever, even to go outside or to go to a park, they're just like, screw that. I was like, I'm not, right. I'm not doing it. Yeah. Like that, that it makes no sense. No, but you can't, yeah, you're not even trying to tell me why that makes any sense. So I'm not doing it. Um, and I think part of that, a big part of that is that we can finally, we actually see the end. Right. Like if this yeah. vaccine miracle hadn't happened, I don't know what it would have been like right now. It would have been a very different psychological thing. But I think that's why part of the reason, in addition to the variants, why we're seeing cases soar is that people have just reached their kind of maximum level of, of uh, restricting themselves. Yeah. Uh, or some people have. And a lot of people can't avoid exposing themselves, obviously, but some people can and aren't. That is so true. Uh, listen, Chris, thanks for talking to us about that this morning. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Great piece. That's Chris Selly. He's in the National Post. You can read his latest piece, which was about the mandatory hotel quarantine imposed by the federal liberal government. It was supposed to keep out the variants. Given that the variants are raging, can we say that that was a failure? This is Mornings with Simi. 25. That is now the number of people dealing with COVID-19 on the Vancouver Canucks. I mean, pretty much the entire team we're talking about. We also know that the problem isn't just COVID-19. It is the highly contagious variant of the virus. So once again, where does this leave us? Where do the Canucks go from here? For the latest on that, we're joined now by Global BC Sports Anchor Squire Barnes. Good morning, Squire. Hi, Cindy. Are, are you surprised by this too? It just seems like every day I figure, okay, well, this this must be as many people are going to get it, and then they add more names to the list. Well, there's still a few more players left, I guess, but uh, they are running out. It is surprising because what happens off the ice is a lot of serious protocols. The Canucks dressing room is different than it was in a regular regular season. They're spread out a lot more. They wear masks off the ice. When they're on the road, they're basically in jail. They go from the airport to the hotel to the rink, and they don't do much moving around. So it is a bit surprising. However, the Canucks were on their break just before this happened. So the players were allowed to do a bit of R&R. So maybe that had something to do with it. Right, because they did say yesterday that they know that it came, it was from one player and it was out in the community that that's where it came from. Yeah, so they're not saying exactly uh, where that person was in the community. We've heard that maybe some of the players went to Whistler with their families. We've also heard that maybe someone got it in a restaurant. They're not saying exactly who got it or where they got it, but those are the things we've heard. Okay, where does this leave us, though, Squire? I mean, realistically, can they even play another game this season? Well, yes, they can. And the NHL, in fact, is hoping that they could play maybe next weekend. Um, as long as they start getting negative tests from the players, they will try to assemble a team. The thing is, the Canucks are not in a playoff spot right now, and they're supposed to play 56 games this year. Every team is supposed to play 56 games. 
if the Canucks don't play, let's say they said, okay, that's it, you're not playing the rest of the year, it's going to change the schedule for the other teams who are fighting for a playoff spot. That's why they want the Canucks to play all the games they're scheduled to play. If it got to a situation, Simi, where there were a few games left in the season, let's say the Canucks come back and the games are against teams that don't have a chance at the playoffs and the Canucks don't have a chance at the playoffs, they might say then, okay, forget those games. But the games that involve teams that are in a playoff fight, they would like the Canucks to play those games. Right. Getting back up and running, though, I can imagine that's going to be a huge challenge because this is not an easy virus for a lot of people to get over. And now you want them to be right back into on-ice shape. I mean, I I would imagine that's going to be really tough. Oh, it is. And, And a great example of that is the Toronto Raptors. The Raptors went through a spate of a lot of their players getting COVID-19, including some of their main players. And then in March, they lost 13 of 14 games. And one of their best players, Fred Van Vliet, who did have COVID, said that they can't get in the shape that they were in before they got the virus. They just can't seem to get their win. So in the second half of games, they were basically collapsing because they weren't in the kind of shape they used to be. Now, the difference between hockey and basketball is a good basketball player might play the entire game where in hockey it's short shifts, but it doesn't matter. The short shifts are still going to be tough if you're not in the kind of shape you were before. Right. Do you think this has been a real warning and heads up for other teams too, Square? Well, I think the NHL is, is trying to figure out how this happened. Um, luckily, they haven't had many of these outbreaks, but I do think they're going to study what happened here and put the warning out to the other teams. Don't do this. Watch out for that. But I think, Simi, in some ways, it's, you know, it sounds silly to say it this way, but it's just sort of one of those things. It just took one. It just took one player to be in the wrong spot at the wrong time and bring it into the building. And uh, the NHL, for the most part, has been either very good or very lucky at not having a lot of these big outbreaks. Dallas had one just before the season started, 17 of their guys. They missed the first week, then they got it together. Um, A few other teams have had little outbreaks. New Jersey and Buffalo had to shut it down for a little bit. But the Canucks is the biggest one the NHL has seen. So, yeah, I guess heading into the playoffs, we can just write that off. We thought we might have been in contention, though. What about for, for the trading deadline? Like, what about how this affects how players are going to potentially get moved around? Well, they can still get moved. Um, I'm not sure uh, if a guy is still in the protocol. A team probably won't want to make the move. The one thing about the trading deadline, too, is it's going to be tougher for the Canadian teams because if you trade with an American team and you hope the player can help you, that player has to go in quarantine, so you won't see him right away. But I think it will affect maybe some of the players uh, that other teams were interested in. They're going to want to know if this guy is still in COVID protocol, there's no point in me making a trade for him because I don't know when he's going to get over it. I can't have him around my players. So, yes, you're right. It could affect some potential trades. Right. I certainly uh, appreciated the message, though, from the team owner earlier this week where he said, listen, if it can affect these guys, it can affect anybody. So people need to pay attention. Well, considering, too, how many things they do to try and protect themselves from this very thing happening. And, and the only time the players are really close to each other that we see is when they're on the ice of practice or during games. Once they get off the ice, especially in Rogers Arena, everything is done to try and keep them apart and keep this from happening. The one thing about hockey teams or any sports team, even before COVID, they go through these situations where there's a flu that might go through the team. So they have a basic idea of how to try 
to separate guys so you don't have an entire team get a flu that obviously isn't as deadly and bad as COVID-19. But all the protocols that they do off the ice, all the protocols they do on the road, the fact that they're healthy young men and yet they still had this happen to them, it is a warning to every one of us who's not in that situation. So true. Hey, Squire, thanks uh, for talking about it with us this morning. No problem. Appreciate that. Squire Barnes, Global BC Sports Anchor, talking about the situation, the dilemma Vancouver Canucks find themselves in. The messaging is important, too. I think for people to hear that, listen, these young, healthy guys have been really hit hard by COVID. You know, that goes against sometimes you hear people say, oh, it's just a cold. Oh, it's just a flu and I'll get over it. No, these guys are being laid flat by it. And that doesn't even happen during the regular hard hit flu season. So it is something they got to pay attention to, especially those restrictions and regulations.